Hey, this is Tommy. This week's episode of Southbound is a replay of my 2021 interview with author S.A. Cosby. When we talked two years ago, his novel Razorblade Tears was just starting to hit it big. It made a lot of lists of the year's best books. He's now got a new novel called All the Sinners Bleed, and it got a rave review in the New York Times from none other than Stephen King. Cosby works the rich and troubled soil of race, history, and violence in the South. He knows those dark back roads as well as anybody. But he's also a thoroughly entertaining storyteller on the air as well as on the page. Enjoy this one, y'all. There was a thing online, and it was one of these social media things where it's like, oh, if you can, if you can uh, name all 30 of the, or if you've experienced all 30 of these things, um, then you're just, you, you know, you're real country or you're a real redneck. And, you know, I looked at that list and I'm like, I've done all these things twice. <laughs> but technically, I'm not a redneck. I, I, like I said, I've, I've eclipsed redneck and went right through the southerner. Hey, y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. How about this for a premise? Two aging ex-cons, one black and one white, each have a gay son. The two sons get married and then are brutally murdered. Their daddies set out to get revenge and to ease their regrets over how they treated their sons when they were alive. That's the setup for the novel Razorblade Tears by Virginia native Sean Cosby, who writes under the name S.A. Cosby. His book is violent, tragic, redemptive, and a precise sketch of hard-time Southern lives. Razorblade Tears got rave reviews from the New York Times and Washington Post, and he's already sold the movie rights. Cosby lives in southeastern Virginia, and worked a series of blue-collar jobs before breaking big as a writer here in his late 40s. He's had a lot of time to think about the big themes he writes about and to understand why he loves the South while he wishes so much of it would change. I think he's a voice you're going to be hearing from for a while. Here's our conversation. Sean Cosby, I want to start simple. So the, the idea for this book... Um, just kind of come out of your head or did something in particular spark it? Um, you know, it actually came from two kind of uh, different uh, uh, inspirations. Uh, one is sort of comical. Um, I was having a conversation with a fellow writer um, named Todd Robinson, who's a great writer, and he used to publish a uh, quarterly crime fiction magazine called Thuglet. And he and I were talking and he sent me a, um, a picture in our DM conversation of Danny Trejo and Ron Perlman. And he was talking, he made a joke. He said, I'd love for somebody to write a story about these two uh, effers. And, <laughs> and, and I, th- I started, I started thinking about, uh, you know, men of a certain age and, and men who have uh, metaphorically gone through the wars or, you know, uh, and literally gone through some wars. And, and what does it look like when you're, you've got more, um, yesterdays than tomorrows and how do you deal with that you know how do you deal with your your existential place in the world you know how do you try to correct some mistakes that you've made so that was one inspiration I, I and, and then the other inspiration 
um, was a little more serious. I have a really good friend who uh, about the same age I am. I'll be uh, I'm 47 now. He and I started school together, and um, he uh, he came out a few years ago to his parents. And uh, you know, as his friend, as all of his friends, we all knew he was gay. It was no big deal with us. But his, his he came out to his parents, and it didn't go well. And later on, he and I were having a beer, and he was talking about it. And he said, you know, maybe I should have just kept it to myself. And I couldn't imagine how hard that must have been for him to say, because it was horrible for me to hear. And I also, I can't imagine what it's like to think that you can't be the full version of yourself with people who are supposed to love you unconditionally. And so those two ideas kind of melded together uh, to create the initial uh, genesis of Raise Away Tears. I mean, they changed a lot from the beginning and what I started with, but uh, that was basically the, the seeds that, uh, that led to the book. And you're obviously dealing with some big themes here. And I think you mentioned that sort of, can you correct the past or whatever it feels like regret is, is one of the big themes here, not just for these, for the way these two men treated their sons when they were alive, but also it feels like for their own past, you know, they both have pretty checkered past. They, they did some bad things. And it's interesting to me that those same skills that they find so useful maybe they wish they didn't have. I definitely think there's a line in the book where um, uh, one of the characters, Buddy Lee, one of the main protagonists, he, uh, he says, he visits his son's grave and he tells him, he said, I'm going to try to put this devil that lives inside my soul to good use. You know, and, and the same thing with Ike. I mean, Ike ruminates a lot on his past, you know, when he was in that world, uh, you know, in that sort of gang drug dealer life. And he had a nickname. He was, he was rioted, you know, because he was a one-man riot. And both of them are, are, are regretful of that past and sort of ashamed of that past. And so, you know, like you said, they're using these skills for good, but there's a part of them that I know wish they didn't have these skills at all. And especially for Ike, he's really tried to leave that in the past. He, you know, in the beginning of the book, um, when Buddy Lee um, uh, first uh, approaches him about uh, investigating um, the, the murders because the cops aren't making any headway. And, um, you know, there's a point where he's by himself and he thinks that, you know, he says to himself, you know, Buddy Lee uh, suggested that he was afraid of spilling blood. And it wasn't that he was afraid of spilling blood. He was afraid that once he started, he couldn't stop. And so I, I, I'm personally fascinated with those ideas of identity and, and, and self-determination. And, you know, who are we? You know, are we the face that we present to the public? Are we the face, are we the face that we see privately? Or are we the secret face that we never show anyone? I, I, I was wondering as I read if you have, you know, if if any of the thrillers, mysteries that you've read, the the heroes protagonists sort of influenced you along the way. I've got a couple in mind, but I was kind of wanted to hear first from you if there's any particular characters that you felt like were maybe kind of role models in a way for these two guys. Oh yeah, I mean I'm a huge crime and I mean I'm a huge reading fan in general. Um, but uh, you know I, I I think a lot of this. Like, for instance, I love James Lee Burke. I love Dave, the Dave Robichaud character. And I think Ike and Buddy Lee could be what Dave would be if he didn't have a strong moral compass. Um, I'm a huge fan of uh, Robert Cray's work and Elvis Cole and Joe Pike. And I think also, again, you know, Buddy Lee and, and Ike are, are less disciplined versions of that Joe Pike character. Um, and then also, I think, uh, this is kind of funny, but... Uh, a lot of the influences came from film. 
you know, uh, like I'm a huge fan of like 70s B movies. And one of the big influences on the book was a movie called Rolling Thunder, uh, starring William Devane as a former Vietnam vet who's uh, who's uh, has who has his hands amputated, and these guys kill his wife and his son, and you know it's all just horrible stuff. And he uh, goes on a you know bloody path of revenge. And um, you know, for a B movie that has a low budget, that movie really tackled the themes of revenge and the cost of vengeance in, in a way that I thought was realistic. And so I was kind of um, trying to evoke that same sense of of weight you know, that sense of repercussions. There were two others that I thought of. One is sort of Jack Reacher, you know, the Lee Child character who is capable of this sudden violence. Although I think, as, as you say, he may have more control over it sometimes than, than I can buddy Lee do. And the, uh, the other guy I thought of was Easy Rollins, you know, the Walter Mosley's character who, because like Ike, um, he just wants to have a normal life. And the violence of his past, for one way or another, keeps, you know, as they say in, in The Godfather 3, I guess, it, it keeps pulling him back in. And that, I felt that tension between the normal life he wanted to lead and what he was drawn into is a sort of a heartbreaking thing, right? Oh, yeah. For Ike, it's, it's you know, it, it, he's torn between these two extremes. He's torn between not doing anything and just letting the police handle it and continuing to live the quote unquote straight life that he's established for himself. And he's torn between that and his nature. And his nature is to handle things himself, regardless of what that looks like or what that costs. And so, you know, the first couple chapters of the book, it's really me building up to that moment where Ike decides to throw in his lot with Buddy Lee and start, um, you know, looking into this crime. Because I didn't want that to be a snap decision for him. Because unlike Buddy Lee, Ike has a lot to lose. You know, he has a business that he, he runs a landscaping business. Uh, he employs like seven to 10 people. Um, he's, you know, he's got his wife. He has a little girl who's the, you know, the daughter um, uh, of his, uh, uh, his son and his son husband that they uh, had through a surrogate. And so the idea of just throwing caution to the wind and, you know, jumping in a truck with a double barrel shotgun and, and, and seeking out uh, retribution I didn't want that to be something easy for him. I didn't want him to just come to that decision overnight. There are stressors, stressors that had to happen for him to finally say, you know what? F it. I'm, I'm going to do what I need to do. And so uh, I'm glad that people catch on it. I'm glad that you caught on that because yeah, it's not easy for Ike. Like you said, like easy, you know, he just wants a normal life. He wants to be the, the good person and do what they tell you you're supposed to do to get your little piece of the American dream. But then ultimately he feels responsible. Uh, even though he didn't have anything directly to do with what happened to his son, he feels responsible. He feels regret that he didn't care about his son and, and he didn't accept his son for who he was. This is a, a deeply, deeply Southern book, among other things. And I want to kind of explore a few of those facets of that. One is, to me, obviously, Ike and Buddy Lee are having to confront their failures and not being accepting enough of their gay sons when they were alive. And I think maybe from the outside, people would understand that, uh, that Buddy Lee might not do that. Uh, people from the outside might not understand as well that Ike would feel that way as well. I think there's, I think maybe people who aren't in the South don't quite 
understand there's a pretty strong streak of conservatism in the black South when it comes to these issues. Is that part of what you were trying to sort of highlight there? Exactly. Most definitely. I mean, I grew up, you know, I always tell people Virginia is my heart and it's my home. And uh, there's a deep seated streak of what I like to call social conservatism um, in the, in, in the black community in the South, you know, the black Baptist church, uh, whether it's a, uh, uh, whether it's an AME church or a Pentecostal, um, church or whether it's a, uh, you know, sneak handling church is a big part of the black experience in the South. And a lot of times those churches are not accepting of people who are, uh, are gay or LGBTQ or what have you. And so I wanted to talk about that because I find that maddening and interesting at the same time that uh, for a community that I'm a part of that has suffered and fought so hard for just the right to exist, that, you know, the dichotomy of looking at someone who's gay and saying, well, no, that's an abomination, that's against God. When you don't understand that those issues that that person's going through are directly mirroring the issues that we've gone through. You know, that I firmly believe that nobody's free so everybody's free. And, and, and so that's not to say that that is the prevailing attitude in the, in the black community in the South, but it's a big part of it. It's a lot more than people want to admit. There's a huge issue about masculinity and, 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 you know, the definition of masculinity in the black community in the South and rural areas and what that means. Like, for instance, I'll give you an example. When I was a kid, there were two words that you could say that would start a fight on site. If you call me the N word or you call me a, a pejorative word for a gay person, there were times where I've seen people get angrier about being called the pejorative word for a gay person than the N word. That's not to say they were okay with it, but the, the sense of rage and the sense of insult was, was stronger for someone calling you gay or insinuating that than them saying a racial epithet. And I think there's, again, I think that goes back to the, to the black church. It goes back to social conservatism, but that's definitely something I wanted to talk about and something I wanted to examine. There's also an interesting kind of back and forth between the two of them at several points in the book where I think they slowly come to realize that they are more similar than different, mm -hmm. not just because of their sort of ex-con past, mm -hmm. but because of their experiences growing up there, that sort of thing. And, and I think that's always been an interesting thing to me where that sort of a race and class interplay with each other. In this book, Ike is actually a socially probably of a higher class than Buddy, Buddy mm -hmm. Lee. He's got a nicer truck for one thing. And you yeah. have this nice scene in this book where Buddy Lee's, telling he's sort of admiring Ike's truck and Ike's saying yeah but when you get pulled over the, the truck doesn't matter if you look at Ike like I said socially he's got his own business he's like I said he employs people he has a, his house he has a nice dually as we call it down this way um but that is tempered that's tempered by the fact that he's an African-American man and that's something that Buddy Lee can't uh understand because he's never had to think that way and so all he looks at is like, oh, you got this nice truck. You're doing all right. And so I, you know, tells him, yeah, but uh, I get pulled over two or three times a month, you know, for nothing. It's hard for me to get a loan to expand my business. You know, you, you know, he, he, and Buddy Lee says, well, all I know, the only color that matters is green. And Ike tells him, yeah, green doesn't matter, though, if it's in a black hand. And I think that's something that Buddy Lee learns over the course of the book. But what Ike learns and I think Buddy Lee earn, learns as well, is that like you said, they're more alike than they are different, not just because of their background as ex-cons, but because of where they come from, where they grew up at. And, and that's something that I often talk about, that um, in some instances, 
I, as a person from the South, have more in common with you, a white man from you know the Georgia coast, than I may have with anyone of any color or any ethnicity from Chicago or Detroit or Philadelphia or Los Angeles. Um, there's a certain uh, social and I think uh, philosophical mindset that exists in small towns in the South that is uh, universal. Doesn't you know? It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, and a lot of times. It's sometimes the my neighbors that don't want to accept that. You know, I saw a thing online the other day. It made me think about this. There was a thing online, and it was one of these social media things where it's like, oh, if you can, if you can uh, name all thirty of the, or if you've experienced all thirty of these things, um, then you're just, you're, you know, you're real country or you're a real redneck. And you know, I looked at that list, and I'm like, I've done all these things twice. <laughs> But technically, I'm not a redneck. I, I, like I said, I've, I've eclipsed redneck and went right through the southerner. But, you know, I grew up uh, experiencing things that a lot of people that uh, uh, live in, like I said, Manhattan have never experienced. You know, I field dressed a deer and, you know, I've snare trapped rabbits and stuff like that, you know, and, and I've, I've been in church all day Sunday for homecoming. And so um, I definitely am trying to talk about that similarity in a way that is palatable to people. So that they understand that the South doesn't belong to one set of people or another set of people. It, it belongs to everyone. You know, I love the South. And to paraphrase James Baldwin, because I love it, I seek to criticize it because I want it to be the best version of itself. And I feel like the, the you know, the, the tragedy of the South in a lot of ways is that white Southerners, by and large, either don't see that similarity or they don't want to that's the tragedy of of, of southern living you know uh, uh, faulkner wrote about this all the time uh about the tragedy that pull of the pull of blood and how you know uh the, the idea that my blood is more pure than your blood even though we both have uh bled on the same round so to speak um you know uh i love that quote that faulkner has that the past is never really dead not even the past and I think that's the tragedy and the triumph in some ways of, of, of Southern uh, fiction and Southern uh, literature. Um, with characters like Buddy Lee and Ike, you know, uh, that idea of their, 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 their union, uniformity in Southern living um, is something that uh, unites them toward the end of the book. But in the beginning, they are from two different worlds and they don't trust each other at all. You know, Buddy Lee looks at Ike as somebody who's who's afraid, who's a coward, because he doesn't want to handle things. Um, and, and Ike looks at Buddy Lee as, you know, um, I don't want to be offensive, but he looks at him as trash of a certain color. And uh, he doesn't want to be involved with this trash. And uh, what they both learn is that they're both so hurt and they're both so full of regret that this the death of their sons forces them not only to reckon with the way they treated their boys, but the way they've lived their lives. I wanted to go back to something you said earlier though. Yeah, the idea that some white Southerners don't wanna share the South, is, is they also do that uh, nationally. Uh, whenever you hear the media talk about blue collar workers, that's always shorthand for, for white guys in unions. But you know, I grew up in the South around black people who were blue collar workers my whole life. And so I think that's an incredible, uh, uh, I think that's interesting the way those divisions are made. You know, uh, the way those divisions are, are made and solidified by people who have an vested interest in keeping people separated. So that's interesting to me, too. 
When we come back, I talk to S.A. Cosby about his beginnings as a writer, which go all the way back to the fairy tales his mama told him. She would read me stories, and I would I would pick the stories apart for plot holes. You know, I'm like, I, I didn't understand. I was like, well, why are the little pigs building their houses out of sticks and <laughs> straw? Why didn't they just build it out of bricks in the first place? And, and my mom, at one point, she got very exasperated. And she's like, you know what, Sean? Why don't you just write your own story? And then you can end it any way you want. And I was like, all right. That and more ahead on Southbound. Before we get back to this episode... I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with S.A. Cosby. The violence in your books, you know, there's uh, <laughs> on sort of on sort of a uh, sliding scale. I feel like you're you pushed it to eleven on a lot of this. There are a couple of scenes in there that are a little bit hard to read, and yeah. there are I think there's lots of ways of dealing with this. You know, in some of these type books, a lot of the violence sort of happens off screen, or yeah. it happens at sort of a you know at a middle distance or something like that mm-hmm. you've got the lens right up on the blood and guts yeah and i'm i'm just wondering uh what your thoughts are on that and and why you choose to do it that way um i do that in all my writing because i believe violence should hurt violence should have consequences when I, you know as a reader as a, as a as somebody who you know, loves reading and, and, and watching films and stuff. Nothing bugs me more than seeing somebody get in a fight and get thrown down a flight of stairs and get punched in the face. And then two seconds later, they're fine. They're up walking around talking about what they got to do next. Um, for me, in my writing, uh, I want the violence to have consequences because in real life, getting punched in the face hurts. It hurts a lot. And I, I don't want to do a disservice to the reader and let them think that, you know, that the violence that you're reading about is cartoon violence, you know? Now, specifically for Razorblade Tears, the violence in Razorblade Tears is really tied to the grief that Ike and Buddy Lee feel. You know, their, their, their reactions are outsized because they're so angry and they're so full and racked with guilt and grief. And I felt like the story, you can write about anything you want as long as your story earns it. And I thought Razorblade Tears earned that justification because these men lost their sons. And I can't think of anything that justifies extreme violence like losing a child. I don't have any children myself, but I have a niece that I helped to raise. And yeah, somebody hurt her or somebody did something to her, I could see myself caving their head in with a shovel. Uh, It's not too far of a leap to make. And I I don't think, I think any reader who reads the book, even if the violence kind of unnerves them, can understand the motivation. You're catching this wave right now. You're, you know, uh, great reviews in the New York Times, Washington Post, sold the movie rights, all this stuff. You're 47. 
And so you're you're hitting it um, in in a you know a period in your life where you've done some stuff before that. And I, I'm wondering. I know you've been writing for a long time. I'm wondering before some of these good things started happening, sort of how you paid the light bill month to month and that sort of thing. Oh man. Oh, I had a lot of jobs and I hated all of them except writing. Uh, I used to be a bouncer. <laughs> I used to be a bouncer. I was a manager for a hardware store. I was a, a mate on a fishing boat. I uh, did landscaping. Like I, a lot of those landscaping parts in that book are taken from my. Uh, I, I was I was gonna say there's a lot of there's a lot of detail about the landscaping business in the book that becomes useful, and that comes from your own experience. Yeah, it comes from me being a, working for a landscaping uh, team, and so uh, you know I, I did a lot of different jobs, but um, I always felt like I wanted to be a writer, and I never called myself a writer because it took me a long time to get published. But back in twenty. I can't remember the exact date, but I, I went to a lecture uh, at a nearby college and the lecture was Walter Mosley. And he was giving a lecture on how to write a novel in a year. It was a lecture series that he had going on. He was going from college to college that year on the East Coast. And he asked me, he said, are you a writer? I said, well, I've done some writing, but I haven't had anything published. And he said, did you finish a story? Have you finished a story? I was like, yeah. He said, well, then you're a writer. And that always stuck with me. You know, it always stuck with me that, you know, I think, you know, like I said, you know, it's funny, the jobs that I had, I wasn't bad at them. I mean, I've only been fired from one job and, and that, that, was, that was justified. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but I, it, was def, it was definitely justified. I, I, I was, a, I was a, a laborer on a brick mason crew and I came to work. I'd been out partying the night before and I'd, you know, come into work hungover and I couldn't carry the bricks and I couldn't stir the concrete. And the guy was like, I'm going to have to let you go. And I'm like, you know what? You're doing me a favor. I'm going to go and get some sleep. But um, no, um. Writing has always been the thing that I thought I was pretty good at. And I don't mean to sound egotistical with that. I just, it's just the thing that really came easy to me in a way that, and it made me feel like I had purpose. I don't know how, to, I don't know if I'm getting that across, but, um, and so every job that I had was just a job to get me time to write some more, you know? Uh, like when I was, I was a retail manager for 11 years. And through that, through that time, I wrote the first draft of a fantasy novel that didn't do so great. I wrote my first crime novel, My Darkest Prayer. I sold it while I was still working at the, uh, you know, at, at the uh, 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 hardware store. Um, and so all those jobs, all those things that I did were to me in my mind, just ways for me to keep writing. You know, it was a very uh, punk rock, I guess, sort of mentality. You know, the movie deals are nice and the good reviews are nice. And the, you know, being on New York Times bestseller list is great. I'm not gonna lie. But in the beginning, I just wanted people other than my mama and my aunt to read my stories, you know. I want to ask about one job in particular. I read a story from your local paper that said you work or worked at a funeral home. Yeah, I was a funeral home attendant. I wasn't a mortician. I don't have a mortician's license, uh, but I was a funeral home attendant. I went on calls to pick up bodies. I helped uh, move bodies around at the funeral home. I, I did. I worked on services. I you know, I washed the uh, uh, the the, the uh, uh, hearse and stuff, and clean up around there. And um, it was a job that, again, afforded me opportunities to write. Well, I wanted to ask about that job in particular because I I was wondering whether there were things you learned about death and grief and that sort of thing from dealing with that stuff every day. Definitely about grief. I, I learned, you know, just again, I wasn't a part. Like I was just kind of a 
a, a guy Friday there, but watching the professionals there, the ones who, who have the degrees and who have the licenses and watching how they were able to deal with the multiple permutations of grief that they encountered every day, whether it was somebody coming in and just screaming at the top of their lungs and, 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 and you know, and, 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 and you feel this almost primal sense of loss or whether someone who was very quiet, who came in, who didn't speak a lot, or someone who, you know, was being uh, very humorous and just trying to deal with it that way. Uh, it gave me an insight into what I think is the human capacity to compartmentalize anything, you know? Uh, unfortunately, I think human beings have the ability to get used to anything. And uh, when I sat down to write Raised Blade Tears, and a little bit of this in Blacktop Wasteland, the ability of characters like Ike and Buddy Lee and Beauregard to compartmentalize the parts of themselves that are, they feel are weak or frail, or the parts of themselves that are, are you know, um, you know, that are, are uh, vulnerable. Um, that's not a healthy way to behave, I don't think, but it's a way to behave that a lot of people have taken up, especially men, especially men in the rural South, especially men that come from the area, you know, where, where I grew up at. And so um, being in that environment, I was able to, to show that. What I was also able to do, though, was to flip that on his head and show these men growing and changing, because I saw that too. You know, I saw people who came in who, you know, didn't say what they wanted to say to a loved one. And now, you know, it's too late. And I saw them open up, you know, and, 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 and really let that out. And so I was able to use both sides of that coin in, uh, in my writing. Now, I, I heard or read somewhere that you sort of started out this literary life by telling your folks that you didn't like the way stories ended. Like the big bad, like the big bad wolf or something, right? Yeah, my poor mom, God rest her soul, she, she's passed on. But when I was a little kid, she would read me stories and I would I would pick the stories apart for plot holes. You know, I'm like, I, I didn't understand. I was like, well, why are the little pigs building their houses out of sticks and <laughs> straw? Why didn't they just build it out of bricks in the first place? And, and my mom, at one point, she got very exasperated. And she's like, you know what, Sean? Why don't you just write your own story? And then you can end it any way you want. And I was like, all right. And so... I started writing these little seven-year-old, eight-year-old stories about uh, about gnomes and elves that lived in a tree outside my window. And, and do you come from a like a storytelling family? I mean, did your family sit around at gatherings that are Sundays or something and just sit around and tell stories? Oh, yes. I come from a long line of uh, backyard orchards and uh, cookout, uh, you know, raconteurs. Uh, I remember my uncles playing spades and telling stories about surfing and I had an uncle who was a Korean war vet and he would tell all these stories about uh introducing surfing to the Koreans and I had another uncle who uh loved to tell funny stories uh, about his uh interactions with his uh employees uh fellow employees at his job and my aunts and cousins it just that we just all were they were all those kind of like I said uh oral storytellers uh, uh nobody became a writer per se but I loved being around that that culture, being around that environment, you know, uh, and all, everybody in my family was also very quick on their feet, you know. Don't come to a cook out of our house if you got thin skin because you're gonna get your feelings hurt. And so uh, <laughs> that inspired me too. I use that in my writing a lot. I, I use that kind of quick wit in my writing. There's always a character in, in something I write that has a, a sense of humor, a sharp sense of humor, um, because I think that also helps the narrative. Uh, you know, you're writing about 
like with Razorblade Tears, you write about grief. Um, with Blacktop Wasteland, you're, you're writing about identity and poverty. And, and so somebody that can come in and, 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 and drop some humor into the story helps a lot because that happens in real life. I'm wondering what this feels like for you. I mean, you know, we all do, do some version of this for 11. There's a lot of lonely days. You know, you're sitting by yourself in a room somewhere. You never know if anybody's going to care, you know, about what you write. And, you you know, even even though you don't do it for that reason, you do, I, I suspect, allow yourself to daydream every once in a while about what it would be like for for a book of yours to catch fire. Well, that's happened. And so I'm wondering what that feels like for you and how it compares to maybe what you thought it would feel like. It's it's surreal. It feels like it's happening to somebody else. You know, um, I'm very, uh, like my mom, I, I get it from my mom. I'm very down to earth. I'm very realistic about things. I all, you know, like you said, in the back of your mind, you hope that a book catch fire or you hope that somebody notices you or you hope that you get published. Um, but the things that have happened, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. The other day, uh, we went to get a car and I, we bought this car. And when I got home and sitting in the yard, I looked at it and I realized my writing bought this car. You know, my writing did that. That's my book sitting there. And, and growing up the way I did, growing up in extreme poverty and, and having to work really hard physical labor jobs a lot. You know, uh, seeing the people around me have to work those kind of jobs, uh, living paycheck to paycheck, you know, uh, being afraid of every time the phone ring, because God forbid it's another bill. Uh, being able to, you know, not things aren't perfect now at all. I'm not saying that, but the idea that the, the things that I write about are helping, uh, uh, you know, with my life, with my household is amazing. And, and to me, that's the ultimate uh, dream come true that I can actually pay bills with my writing. And I know that seems kind of a uh, kind of small minded, but that's for me, that's the biggest dream come true. Like I actually can pay some bills with, with the fruits of my labor. And, and that's just, I'll never, I'll never not be amazed by that. The mark of a good mystery novel or thriller is how the hero gets the job done in ways you might not expect. The mark of a great mystery novel is when the hero has to sacrifice something to make things right. S.A. Cosby is reaching for greatness in his books. His heroes take heavy losses on the road to redemption. Their sacrifice tells the truth about how hard it is to change. If you want, you can read Razorblade Tears as simply a hard-edged thriller about two old men out for revenge. But you might also read it as a story about the South how after all this time we still don't trust one another, and how sometimes understanding only comes through sweat and blood. We've got a hard road ahead if we want to make this place somewhere that everybody feels welcome. It's a series of battles. And sometimes, like in S.A. Cosby's book, even the old and tired have to rise up and fight again. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where each episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See you all next time. 
Thanks for listening.